I want to get right into it. If you got your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 5 through, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 11 through to 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. I want to encourage you, please, 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 bring Bibles and notebooks if you can. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We'd love to put one into your hands. But this is going to be a series where there's going to be, we're going to cover a lot, of, a lot of ground. There's a lot of scripture involved. So we want to encourage you to bring that to church so that you've got something right on. And if you've got like technology, then obviously you can use that. I'm still a huge fan of writing notes on paper. Uh, do I got anybody that's with me on that one? You still like the like paper? Yeah, I love it. I love it when I hear Bibles turning. It's just a good thing. So, Hebrews chapter five, verses eleven through to fourteen, and it says this: About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid. Food For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food, everybody shout solid food. Solid. Come on, everybody shout meat. It's for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This morning as we begin our series, Meat Eaters, I want to speak to you from the subject, we have the meats, as we look at what maturity is in our lives. Will you pray with me? Father... We thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it's alive, that it's powerful, that it's active, and that it has the, uh, the ability to penetrate deep into our lives. It has the ability to change our hearts and our minds. So God, I pray that you would do that this morning as we, as we read from your word, as we discuss these topics and these issues. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us, that we would experience your grace and your presence in this moment. We love you. I thank you for every single person sitting in this room this morning. We worship you in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, everybody shouted. Uh, how many of you like Arby's, just out, of, just out of curiosity? Like, you're an Arby's fan. No one wants to raise their hand because you don't want to be judged. I get it, so. I like Arby's. Arby's. Arby's is good. Now, show of hands, how many of you have heard the Arby's commercial or seen it on TV? And at the end, you have the great voice, we have the meats, right? Like, I love, it's like one of my favorite commercials ever. And I was thinking about it, and when I heard it again the other day, I was like, this is perfect. Jesus spoke to me after I heard it. Uh, not really, but... Uh, but I've been playing around with this idea thing as, as I've been reading Hebrews, and the Arby's slogan has been their indictment upon every other fast food and burger joint as they claim that their product is greater than and more substantive than their competition. That they truly have the meat which no one else has. That's their, that's their claim, and it's kind of now their, their new claim to fame. And as I was thinking about it the other day, as I heard this slogan come across, I was like, Wow, this is amazing. And this is what the book of Hebrews is about. That slogan, Arby's slogan, is literally what the book of Hebrews is all about. That what we have in Jesus is far greater than what we have in or by anything else. And more specifically, that Jesus is greater than anything we can ever have or will ever have or anything that we could go back to. Right? See, the problem that these, the recipients of this letter were facing was that in their lack of maturity, they were tempted to withdraw from their faith and go back to what they had before Jesus. All right? The writer of Hebrews wrote this letter to simply let them know one thing. In Jesus, we have the meat. It is the slogan of Hebrews. In other words, we have everything that we need in Jesus. And the mark of maturity is seen in those who are able to recognize this reality and anchor their life in it. Accordingly, a little bit of a disclaimer. 
this series is going to be a challenging one. One that I hope causes growth in all of us. And over the past few weeks, we've rolled out significant pieces of vision as to where we are going this year as a church. And hopefully, for your life, you have a vision as well, where you're going. See, vision is the beginning of what now requires growth. Whenever vision is, is, is put out there, it's time to start working out the process of that. And how many of you know that the process of vision, whether it's as a church or in our lives or for our marriages or for parenting or, or whatever else you find yourself in life, how many know that vision causes growth? Vision creates the room for process in our lives. And so as we've talked about this, God really challenged me on this idea. We've got we've to grow. We've got we've to push in. So this is going to be a challenging series. If you've ever had a vision for something, then you know once you have the vision, you've got to get on with the process. And this series and series to come are a part of the process. This series is meant to cause growth in all of our lives no matter where we find ourselves at. No matter where you find yourself at. If you've been a Christian for a really long time, can I tell you that this series is for you? Because I've met some people running around thinking they've matured themselves past Jesus. You ever met that person before? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. I get it. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christ follower for, how many of you know we can still grow? We've still got room to grow. We've still got room to to mature. But I also want to say to those of us, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've got no paradigm of faith whatsoever. You were duped into coming to church this morning. Somebody was going to take you to Arby's, but they took you here instead. And now you don't know what's going on. And I want to say you've got room as well. And it's the journey of faith in front of us that always leaves us in places where we have room to grow. We can all grow and mature. And that's what this series is about, is growth and maturity. And so I want to make sure that the disclaimer is put out in the beginning, that we're going somewhere with this thing, and I'm praying that this series helps all of us grow and engage what God has for us in our lives. So there's the disclaimer. Let's set a little context. Every shout context. <laughs> context. This is important. There's a couple of views as to who the writer of Hebrews is. The major view is that it's Paul the Apostle. Now, I will say right out the gate that at the end of the day, after I talk about some of these, these ideas, we're still in a place where we don't really know who the writer of Hebrews is. But one of, the, one of the thoughts is Paul the Apostle. If you read the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of overtones of his languaging and writing and the way that he puts stuff in there. And so it's brought people to this conclusion, maybe Paul the Apostle wrote the, the letter of Hebrews. However, there's some significant things in the letter that point us in a direction away from Paul. So again, we don't have any agreeance on that. There's a, a widely held thought, which is actually kind of an intriguing thought for me, is that it's not Paul the Apostle, but rather Barnabas who wrote the letter of Hebrews, which is an interesting thought because then you could understand why people would feel that there's overtones of Paul in this letter because Barnabas was the one who actually encouraged Paul into ministry. Barnabas, meaning encourager, was the one who took Maul, or Paul, this murderous, crazy person, and as he met Jesus and changed, Barnabas was the guy who said, come on, you can do this, you can step into ministry. He defended him, he encouraged him, he brought him into, into ministry. And so it's a pretty, pretty significant idea and, and, and pretty intriguing. But at the end of the day, when we stack up all the facts, all the thoughts, all the ideas, we come to the conclusion that we just simply don't know who wrote this letter. But we do know about the audience. The book of Hebrews is predominantly, we, we are to believe, uh, pointed at an entirely Jewish audience. 
If you read through the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of things that are going into talking about how Jews would view things. These Jews would now be Christ followers. And this portion of scripture that we have just read is the writer's way to encourage them in something because this is what the problem was. They were tempted to go back to what they used to believe in their rooted faith instead of continuing on in what Jesus had newly done in their life. Let me illustrate it this way. Have you ever been on a diet before? Right? How many of you four days into the diet, you want to go back to pizza and cake? How many of you just want pizza and cake right now? (laughs) (laughs) It's the same thing. It's the same principle. So the writer of this book is saying, hey, why would you go back? The entirety, if we could sum up this book, the book of Hebrews, the entirety of it is why would you go back to legalism, to law, to a a faith where we now understand because of Jesus it's been fulfilled, we're waiting for a second coming. Why would you go back to law when you have grace? Why would you go back? And then as we get to this chapter, chapter 5, he actually highlights why they were thinking about going backwards. Why they were thinking about retreating from their faith. We have a few ideas here that the writer gives us when he references immaturity first. Well, I thought we were dealing with maturity. We'll deal with that in a second. But first, we need to understand why they were desiring to go back, and it's because they were immature and their faith. And so the writer lines out for us a few things that we need to understand about immaturity. So I want to share those with you really quick. A couple things. Write these down if you're taking notes. Four things that are highlighted for us about immaturity. The first one is this. Dullness of hearing. Dullness of hearing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. See, in other words, they were not listening, and because of their not listening, they did not receive the word, and because they did not receive the word, they could not act upon the word. Listen, God is always trying to communicate to us. Come on, somebody. He's always trying to communicate to us. And I hear a lot of people who say, man, I just, I can't hear God. And I will will say this, I can never make the claim that I've heard God audibly. I just can't, right? But I can tell you that God has spoken to me. You don't want to know why? Because of his word. Listen, his voice never differs from his word. You want to hear God? Open up this book. There's nothing crazy, overly spiritual, insane about it. If you want to hear God, hey, I need God, I need you to speak to me. Let's open up his book. Let's open up his book. He's always trying to communicate to us. The problem that I've found is that many of us have a hard time listening. (laughs) We have a hard time Listening, if you're a parent, you understand this. See, immaturity is the inability to truly listen or even worse, have selective listening. Have you ever experienced selective listening before? My kids have selective listening, right? I think my whole household has selective listening at times. (laughs) But that's when you kind of choose, you pick and choose what you want to listen to. And this is where we only choose what we want to hear. I know a lot of people like that, that we only hear what we want to hear. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, look, you, you've, you kinda, you've you missed the beat on some things. There's some immaturity, and the reason that you're wanting to go back to what you knew before is you don't understand what you have in Jesus because you've become dull of hearing. See, the word of God in our life becomes dull when we don't know how to listen. Let me illustrate it this way. 
I love to cook. Any cooks in here? Anybody love to cook? Come on, show of hands. I'm going to make you raise your hand a lot today until I get you doing it, all right? I'm going to find something. How many of you have a shirt on right now? Okay, cool. We're good. I love to cook when, when I cook, <laughs> when we cook in our house. And so, uh, but there's one thing that, uh, that I love cooking more than anything else, and that's tacos. I love tacos, all right? I'm a taco man, all right? And so when cooking tacos, we, we kind of get into it. we got these tortillas that I love, and, and it's just, oh, it's so good. I love, I love tacos. But there's something that belongs on tacos, and it's tomatoes, okay? And I know that's a hard thing for some people. You guys are texture people. you got weird issues with your mouth. I get it, all right? And so tomatoes aren't your thing. But if you're a tomato person like me, there's one thing that you hate about tomatoes, cutting tomatoes, right? Have you ever tried to cut a tomato with a dull knife? You know what I'm talking about? It's no longer a tomato. It's salsa. <laughs> That's what a tomato is. So we have in my house, I don't know why, but I think we went out to the store and bought all the dull knives that exist in the United States of America. Because every time I go to cut a tomato, I go to cut it, and then I'm trying to saw it, right, to get through that tomato. And eventually it's just the guts of the thing everywhere. And all I can picture is Bob the tomato saying, why? <laughs> why? How many know that you need a sharp knife to get through a tomato? A sharp knife. Listen to what the writer's saying. Listen, you've, you've become dull. So this word has become dull. So when applied to your heart, it doesn't cut surgically. It offends because it's become dull. See, God never intended his word to offend us. He intended his word to do surgery on us. But how many of you know you do not want to walk into a surgeon's office and they have a dull scalpel? Come on. We don't want that. We don't want to wake up in the middle of surgery and watch the doc trying to saw away at something. We need dull, or we need sharp surgical <laughs> tools. <laughs> and this is what he's saying. Because of your dullness in hearing, the word has become dull to you. And it's the first mark of immaturity is when we have dullness in hearing. The second mark of immaturity is the inability to be a conduit of received grace. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. This is what the writer's trying to get at. You have this great grace found in and through Jesus, but you're unwilling to share the gift. See, immaturity is the inability to share. We know this when we watch kids, isn't it? When kids don't have the inability to share, we're trying to teach them, we're trying to help them understand that sharing is good, sharing is cool. Purple dinosaurs dress up to help and sing share songs and do all of these things to teach kids to mature in their ability to share. But the writer is saying, hey, look, something's wrong, something's off. Your immaturity has caused you because you're immature. You're unwilling to share the gift that God has deposited in your life through his grace. Have you ever met the newly engaged couple? And they will not shut up about getting married? Right? You're like, yes, we've heard it for the fifth time. You've posted 94 times on Facebook about how he's just so magnificent, right? Have you ever met the avid sports fan or the golfer, right, or the crocheter? No, they don't shout that from the rooftops. They don't. 
They don't share that. <laughs> you ever met the person that just when they're so passionate about something because of what they have and what they know and what they participate in, they will make sure that it's worked into every conversation, every moment. They'll wear t-shirts with it. Football season around here is nuts at the well because there's like 94 teams represented in this place and everybody's willing to give their opinion about it. Why? Because they're passionate about it. But why don't we get that way with Jesus? And that's what the writer's saying. He's actually issuing a statement of immaturity because of their unwillingness to share this great grace. But wait a second. If I have the greatest gift ever given, why would I not shout about it? After the first service, came, somebody came up to me and they're like, we enjoyed service today, but man, you're really enthusiastic. That's what they said. I was like, is this a compliment? Um... And I said, yeah, I'm kind of like this all the time. It's just my problem. <laughs> the person standing next to him was like, yeah, he's like this all the time. And I was thinking about it, and I told the first service this, and I want to make sure that you know this. When you're passionate about something, you say it and spray it. Right? It's everywhere. I talk about the well everywhere I go. I'm not ashamed of it. Right? If, I, if, if I'm with friends, if I'm in the gym, I talk about a church. But more importantly than my church, I talk about Jesus everywhere I can go. If I can slip Jesus into a conversation, I'm going to slip him into a conversation. If we're talking about broccoli, which I don't know why you would be, I will slip Jesus into that conversation. If I'm at my gym, Jesus. If I'm at work, Jesus. If I'm in the coffee shop, Jesus. Why? Because it's about Jesus. When you know the gift that you've been given, you want to let everybody know about that gift. Why? Because it's the greatest gift ever given. I'm getting more and more passionate about fly fishing. I don't know why, but I am. My wife bought me an amazing present for Christmas. She got me boots and waders. Okay? These things that go up to here on me so I can walk around in the water and be dry still. Literally when I got them, I was texting with another buddy on Christmas Day. My wife got me waders and boots. And then he texted me back, mine too. And we're having this like conversation. And then I was like, and Jesus was in my waders and boots because I had to slip it in, right? <laughs> when you're passionate about something, you let everybody know it. Even if it seems offensive, you let everybody know it. Even if people don't care, you let everybody know it. But they were unwilling to share. They were unwilling to be a conduit of received grace. So the writer says, kind of immature here. Third indicator of immaturity is this, an insufficient dietary consumption. Hebrews chapter 5, 12 through 13. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. I love donuts. There's a lot of food talk this morning. Banbury Cross Donuts downtown, I, I love them like the best. They've got a blueberry cake donut that will knock you off your feet. Okay? If given the option, I would eat them every day. If my kids were given the option, they would cheer on that option. To eat them, but come on, how many of you know that donuts are an insufficient diet? I can't live on donuts. 
I wish I could live on donuts, but I can't live on donuts. It's not a sufficient diet. I have to eat more nutrient-dense foods that provide me with everything that my body needs to survive, grow, and remain strong and healthy. And this is the point. Immaturity is seen when we cannot digest the more nutrient-dense concepts and realities of biblical truth or participate in actions associated with those truths. It looks like this. I love to read about forgiveness, but I ain't going to do it. It's getting quiet in this little church this morning. I love to read about overcoming offense, but I can't do it. I love the fact that I have grace in my life, but I won't give it to others. Come on. So the writer is saying immaturity is seen when we have insufficient dietary consumption. I call it spiritual malnutrition. We have to be the type of people that move from milk, as the writer would say, to solid food or, or meat. I mean, that's the goal for every child, isn't it? To move them from milk to solid food. Like, I remember, it was milk, milk, milk when Justice was born. Milk, 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 milk. It's all milk, and then it's mushy food, and mushy food, and mushy food. And I remember the day I grilled the first steak, and I was able to stick it in his mouth. As a father, it was the greatest day of my life. <laughs> my boy is on meat. And he loves steak now. Whenever we make steak, he's like, yes, this is awesome. He loves meat. That is the goal, to move us from mushy food and milk to solid food. Why? Because it's more nutrient-dense. The fourth mark of immaturity is this, unskilled application of God's word. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. See, the last indicator of immaturity is this. It's seen in the statement, unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's dealing with the practical application of God's word and design for our lives. This comes down to application, applying God's word practically. James chapter 1, 23 through 25. I told you a lot of scripture. It says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being a hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all of his doing. That's what I want you to hear this morning, church. You can be enamored with dictation but limited in application. In other words, I know lots of people who fill their lives with all the books and the podcasts and everything they need to possibly hear God's word, but when it comes down to it, they are limited in application and their faith is constantly thrown around by the wind of adversity, temptation, and personal desire. Why? Because immaturity produces in us an inability to apply God's word practically. We have to apply. Every shot apply. Come on, every turn to your neighbor and say, you got to apply it. Turn to your other neighbor and say, like, a smooth lotion. <laughs> that just makes it awkward with that neighbor, I know. <laughs> we have to apply it. we got to act upon it. Wait, that, that's legalism, isn't it? Because we should just be able to sit and hear about God's grace and hear about all the nice, fluffy things about the Word. But I don't need to apply it because that's legalism. No, 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 that's immaturity. We actually find the greatest amount of God's grace in our lives when we're trying to apply the word to our lives. Because that's where grace is necessary. Because we don't do it good all the time, do we? We mess up. 
That's where grace is found at, is when we are learning and navigating his word and trying to apply it to it. That's where we find God's grace the most, is when we're actually trying to live out how he's called us to live it out. We've got to apply it. Which brings us then to the last three things that I want to talk about. The mark of maturity. And this is us laying a baseline. We're going to talk about all kinds of different things in this series. We're going to talk about how maturity causes us to learn how to overcome offense. And we're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about some big things in this series. But we need to lay a baseline so we understand what maturity looks like. So I want to look at three things this morning. Three marks of maturity. And everyone shout number one. Number one, the first mark of maturity is this, an unyielding commitment to progress. An unyielding commitment to progress. More Bible this morning. If you go to the book of Numbers, we'll find ourselves in the story. Moses is leading the charge, the children of Israel, trying to bring them into the promised land. This land that God had promised to them, hence the term promised land. (laughs) He says, Moses, I need you to lead these people into the promised land. Take them. And so they get up, and they're kind of starting to get to the edge of this promised land. They've been wandering in the desert, all kinds of things happening. And so Moses, in conversation with God, realizes we need to spy out the land. We need to go check it out. We need to go house shopping. And so Moses gathers 12 spies they're the 12 heads of each of these, these groups, and, and, and in these 12 heads, there should be some maturity. And so he grabs these 12 guys together. Two dudes involved are Joshua and Caleb. So he sends all 12 of them. He says, go check out the land. Go spy it out. Go, go tell us what's going on in this land. And so they rush in, and they go in there, and they're just blown away. They just stepped into Disneyland. Wow, look how amazing this is. They looked at the fruit, and the fruit was big, and it was juicy, and it was amazing. It was a land that they said flowed with milk and honey. It was this beautiful land, and their faith is rising, and their faith is rising. But then all of a sudden, they saw something they didn't like, a little bit of adversity. You ever been there before? Your faith rises, your faith rises, and all of a sudden, a giant butt enters the picture. But there's people who might want to kill us if we come into this land. You ever met Eeyore before in life? Come on, don't, don't raise your hand if you know them or they're sitting next to you. Just saying. They're the ones that can take anything positive and turn it negative. Right? The sun's amazing. Yes, but it will burn you or give you cancer. What? That's Eeyore people, right? So the spies rush into the land and they gather fruit because Moses says, you got to bring some fruit back for us. Let us know what's in there. And they come out and they're blown away by it, but there's some people in there that's going to cause challenge and adversity and frustration. And they may not be able to get past them. And so the 12 spies come into the land and come back from, from the promised land and they give a report to Moses and the children of Israel. Joshua and Caleb, being the faith-filled men that they were, said, this is great, let's do it. They were, they were so pumped. They were like, let's go at once and take the land. But then the ten other spies gave all the buts. But this, but that, but this, but that. And they said that the people, there's this, there's this quote in there, the people are so big, we would look like mere grasshoppers, and I'm paraphrasing to these people. That was the imagery that they had of themselves. Now watch what happens. Brings us to Numbers 14, 1 through 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? 
And then they said this, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. How would you like to be that leader? Hey, we chose you, dude. You're going to take us backwards. You're our backwards leader. (laughs) And that's what they decided to do. They decided to go back. See, the, the first mark of maturity is an unyielding commitment to progress, but these guys hadn't matured in anything, and so they were okay with going backwards. See, the mark of maturity is seen when we have an unyielding commitment to progress. Why? Because God is always about forward progress. The story of the gospel is about forward progress, and the story of our lives should be about forward progress. See, don't get me wrong. God loves you right where you're at. Oh, he furiously loves you right where you're at. But he loves you so much not to leave you there. Come on. He loves you so much not to leave you there. And this is a hard truth for many of us to assimilate into our lives because somehow we've confused God's grace in our lives as a hall pass for living a stationary life. Why? It's because we don't like progress. Why don't we like progress? couple reasons. One is because we don't like change, right? Not, not, there's not a lot of us, some of us, there's a very low population in this room right now that would say, I'm all about change. I love change. But there are some. But for the general population of us, most of us don't like change. But progress will always bring change to our lives. What's another reason? We don't like challenge, right? Progress always requires more than we are currently handling. The third thing, we don't like critique. See, progress always requires accountability. Let me illustrate it this way. My wife and I argued this week. It was a holy argument. But we're real people. We argue. We fight, just so you know. We're both passionate people, demonstrative people, loud people. And so God's been just dealing with some stuff in my heart and speaking some stuff that I was really excited about. I've been studying and thinking about things, and so I decided I went into the living room and I said, babe, I want to tell you some stuff that I feel, oh man, I'm just so passionate about. I'm excited about where God's taking us as a church and this and that, and I was so excited. And so I went in there and I started rattling all my stuff. I was jumping up and down the hall. I was pumped about giving her, letting her hear these things. Oh, just golden nuggets of goodness that you need to hear. And I got done saying everything and I'm looking at her like a puppy waiting to be pet, right? And I'm like, what do you think, what do you think? And then she did what my wife does all the time. She asks questions. <laughs> what about this? Well, what about this? How are you going to make that happen? Well, how are we going to do this? And I was on this little hope float that all of a sudden had holes in it. And with every question, hole, hole, sinking my ship, hole, pop, pop, pop. And so like, any good Christian man, I raised my voice so she could get what I was trying to talk about. <laughs> no, 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 I guess you didn't hear me. Let me go to 11 because 10's not good enough. She's like, why are you so angry with me? Why are you, like, why are you coming at me like this? I'm just asking questions because I want to help you get there. But you need to know that, that, that there's some things that you need to see and everything like that. Why? Because progression involves critique. And as I'm writing this message, God challenges me with this because I'm like, yeah, the church needs to hear this, needs to hear this. And then he says, you need to hear this. Why were you so frustrated when your wife said some things to you the other day as you're trying to progress? I was like, I wasn't Jesus. What are you talking about? 
See, the first mark of maturity is an unyielding commitment to progress. We can't stay here. We have to keep going. Our marriages can't stay here. They have to keep going. Come on, we, we, we've got to, our, our sphere of influence has to, to grow individually. We've got, to, we've got to grow. Our faith has to grow. We can't stay here. Second mark of maturity is this. Every shot number two. A passionate commitment to others. Passionate commitment to others. Romans chapter 1, 14 through 17 says this. Paul writing, it says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. See, the righteous shall live by faith, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is what I want you to see. Paul's desire to preach the gospel came from his passion for people. We gotta be passionate about people. We gotta be passionate about this city. We gotta be passionate about our neighbors. We gotta be passionate about our families. We gotta be passionate about our coworkers. We have to be passionate for people. God simply put it like this love God, love people. The problem is, is that for many of us, we hold the view that the world would be a better place if it wasn't for people. Right? <laughs> but the truth is, we've been called to love others. As we rolled out vision two weeks ago, the vision that we have around here is for people. Making, building new communities and, and adding more services and, and Redemption House that we talked about, which I've heard a lot of excitement about from people, and, and everything else that we talked about, missions. It's all about, every shout people. people. Come on, every shout people. people. It's about people. We've got to have a commitment for people. But why don't we have a commitment to people? A couple more reasons. First one's pride. Like I said, the series is called Meat Eaters, so we're going to have to digest some stuff right now. Pride. This is what pride is. The inability to change one's mind due to a hardness of heart. That's what pride is. What's the other reason? Preference. One of the reasons we can't be committed to people is because we have a presence, or a preference. The right way and the only way is my way. Right? Here's the other one. Prejudice. This is the literal definition of prejudice from the dictionary. Preconceived opinion that is not based on fact or actual experience. I talk to a lot of people who have a prejudice towards this city. As the church, we can't have pride, preference, or prejudice anywhere in our heart because we will not be an effective body believers if we have those things going on in our lives. We can't be prideful. We can't hold preferences. We can't be prejudiced. Why? Because there's people that we've been called to reach. There's people that we've been called to serve. There's people that we've been called to love. And if any of those things get in the way, then they will stop us from engaging everything that God has called us to. I love Jesus because he didn't have pride, preference, or prejudice. He sat at the table with anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody. For those of you who missed our, our, our dialogue about a new community and, and redemption homes, listen, if you don't know what those are, listen to our vision message, but at the end of the day, when it comes to reaching people through those avenues, if we have prejudice, pride, or preference in our hearts, we will never do what God's called us to do. It just won't happen. You can't help a city with those things going on in your heart. And the third one is this. Every shot number three. 
Come on, you getting something out of this this morning? The third mark of maturity is this, an unrelenting obedience to Jesus. John chapter 14, verses 23 through 24. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, watch this, listen, listen to the language in here. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. See, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who, who sent me. So what I want you to hear this morning. Listen, there is a massive difference between religion and relationship. There is a massive difference between religion and relationship. See, religion produces a regiment in our life where as relationship elicits a response in our life. Notice the term that Jesus uses. If you love, he uses the term love. If you love, you will keep my word. See, Jesus' emphasis was on the relational aspect of obedience. He was saying that those in a relationship will be inclined, even desire, to follow in the pattern and the model for life. It's relationship, not religion. Let me put it this way. It's out of love for my children that I do what I do. It's out of love for my wife that I do what I do. It's out of love for you, all of you, that I do what I do do. The driving force behind any amount of obedience in my life is in response to a relationship that I have with Jesus, not a regiment produced by religious adherence. Let me put it this way. Can I, can I just be like open and vulnerable for you, with you for a second? Nick and I, we've hung out, we've had lunch together. I like this dude. I love this couple. They're an amazing couple. If you want to know an amazing couple, get to know these guys. But Nick and I are no different from each other. We're two dudes who struggle with different things. And I think it's really easy for a lot of people to go, oh, that's the pastor. He doesn't struggle with stuff. He doesn't have stuff going on in his life. So I want to be very open and very vulnerable about something because this point is really important for us to understand. I have temptations in my life. I'm a man. I'm a human being. I am not a robot. I'm tempted to look at things that I shouldn't look at. The temptation's there. I'm tempted to cut corners, forfeit my character and my integrity, to process things faster and to do more things. I'm tempted with that. I'm tempted to Lash out irrationally, be angry, despise people, and be frustrated at things. I'm tempted with those things. And I want you to hear something this morning. This guy right here, Jason Parrish, I'm a Christ follower before I'm anything else. I'm a Christ follower before I'm a pastor. I'm a Christ follower before I'm a leader. Why? Because my title doesn't produce who I am as a follower of Jesus. That's just a function that can be stripped away from me and given to somebody else who Jesus could potentially use more. I'm a Jesus follower. So when the temptations come my way, when the things are in front of my face, when all this stuff is going on, can I tell you that I turn my back on temptation? This is why. Not because it's the good Christian boy thing to do. 
That's not why I do it. I want you to know why I do it. I do it because I love my wife. Did you hear that? I do it because I love my children. I run like Joseph did. Right? When Potiphar's wife was all up in his grill, he ran. Out. Booked it. Why? Because of love. So when I have temptation looking at me, lurking in the background of my life, when there's the temptation there, what do I think of? I don't think about religious rhetoric or decisions made out of religion. I see my wife's face. And I love her. I see my children. And what the example that they need. And because I love my children, I make a different decision. And I see this church, the people that I cherish and love so much, who need a leader who can live with character and integrity. And because I love you, I run. Why do we do what we do in our faith? Not out of religious duty, but out of a love. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because the Father loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. Not because of a duty, but because of love. Think about the scripture. It didn't say because God was obligated. He didn't say because he was obligated. Who wants an obligatory savior? I don't. Why do you follow Jesus? Well, because of obedience, he did something awesome. No, I don't want an obligatory savior. Listen to this. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was obedient to death because of love, not duty. He rose again on the third day because of love, not duty. If we're going to grow and mature, we have to have an unrelenting passion for obedience to Jesus, not out of religious duty, but out of response to a gift that's been given. And we love because the Bible says he first loved. Church, hear me this morning when I say this. God loves you so much. So much. That he gave, not out of obligation, but love. We're not participating in religion around here. We're responding to relationship. And my prayer is this, that you can do what you do you can live the life that you've been called to live not because you're trying to be a good Christian but because you know that you've been loved so you desire to love back in Jesus name come on would you stand